Welcome to Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm one of your hosts, Greg Schill, a law professor at the University of Iowa. Today, we have the fourth in a series of special episodes from a recent symposium on the future of law and transportation, hosted by the Iowa Law Review. What you'll hear is a panel called Transportation Planning and Land Use 2, featuring four professors. This is a follow-up to an earlier panel on the same subject. Each of these professors speaks for about 12 minutes and then takes Q&A. These professors are Janice Griffith, a law professor at Suffolk University, Noah Casis, a legal fellow at NYU, Kenneth Stahl, a law professor at Chapman University, Darian Shansky and Deb Niemeyer, professors of law and engineering, respectively, at the University of California, Davis, and University of Maryland, respectively. This panel is moderated by Clayton Nall, professor of political science at UC Santa Barbara. We hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great honor to be part of this symposium. I want to thank Greg and also members of our law review, Haley and Dana, for helping to put this together. My objectives here is to discuss the role of the Metropolitan Planning Organization. Clayton has already touched upon this to some degree, but they play a very significant role in terms of planning for transportation projects. And the role is a complex one because they are entities basically created at the direction of the federal government. But as Beth Osborne said, when we come to the state, the state transportation, basically the officials there are the state is the king. So the MPOs have to work with states. And also they are supposed to be planning on a metropolitan basis. And we have no metropolitan structures except in Portland, Oregon and the Twin Cities. And then, of course, they are comprised primarily of local elected officials. So they really span all types of governance. So we might call this marble federalism. And their role is sometimes not very well known because they're nested in other organizations so that you don't even see sometimes the word metropolitan planning organization. So today I'm going to focus mostly on the structures, how their roles perhaps can be enhanced, And I'm going to try to project maybe a future role they might play. All right, so first, what are they? They're advisory bodies. They have no power to implement what they plan. And that in itself is a disconnect. Can you think of an entity who has responsible for planning and yet can never see those plans necessarily being effectuated? The federal statute requires the formation of metropolitan planning organizations in urbanized areas where the population is greater than 50,000. And their primary role, at least traditionally, and it continues today, is to comprise a long-term plans, these are 20-year plans, outlining the types of transportation projects that are going to basically be effectuated in that state. So they will come up with a list of projects. The projects have to be such that there's some financing in place for them. So recent criteria on the Fed's part makes it more certain that there has to be a financial possibility. It can't be just a wish list of different projects. And then when we get closer to the 
project's actually taking place, we come down with a four-year plan called the TIP or TIP transportation plan. And it puts forth the transportation priorities that should be basically funded and completed. I said, one of the reasons that we need metropolitan planning organizations is that we have a very fragmented local government structure, as I'm sure all of you know. This just points out the number of localities that might exist in a metropolitan area. So we have Boston has 101 cities. Chicago has over 1,500 municipalities in the metropolitan area. And Los Angeles has got 88 cities and other unincorporated areas. Congress provided for the creation of MPOs in its transportation planning funding going back to the 1970s, although it had actually started in the 1960s in connection with housing and urban development to set forth certain programs that funded planning. And at that time, we're coming out of World War II. We've got a lot of suburbanization going on, and Congress wants to fund transportation roads that are going to connect these growing suburban areas to the central cities and also to connect the growing suburbs to each other, right? So in order to do this, Congress is thinking we need to have some kind of an agency acting on our behalf, which is not completely local, but is operating basically on a regional basis, a metropolitan basis, right? So there's finding that the states are administering, regulating transportation often in a not very coherent pattern. Congress sets forth in the 23rd U.S. Code, Section 134, the criteria that MPOs have to consider in their planning. And I put in here basically the different criteria which reflect an expansion out of a purely transportation planning. All right, so originally MPOs really focused solely on transportation. But over the years, especially after ICE-T Act, Congress began to expand the criteria that MPOs would utilize in terms of planning for transportation. So we're now talking about economic development. We're talking about the safety and security of transportation systems. So we need to protect transportation systems in the event of some kind of natural disaster or even a terrorist act. If obviously, if the transportation is knocked out, nobody's going to be able to move around or be, be mobile. Also, there is a need now, as we've heard from several speakers, to increase the accessibility of transportation and also to provide for greater mobility, different modes of transportation. So this now is also added as criteria. And then the environment comes in, you know, energy conservation, quality of life. We should think about land use planning. We should plan in an orderly manner. And again, economic development. And then also, again, enhancing the integration and the connectivity of transportation systems. Finally, we're now focused on climate change and resiliency. How do we plan to make our cities more resilient? And this is especially important in view of the next Transportation Funding Act, which is coming, the America's Transportation Infrastructure Act. And that act, at least as proposed, creates a new title related to climate change. So my point is that in transportation planning, it has to be integrated with lots of other different types of public functions. So if we're thinking of public infrastructure broadly, we can't plan for transportation in a vacuum. 
In the past, it's been treated as a silo, like many other of our functions. We tend to think of watershed protection by itself or sewerage or solid waste disposal. We've treated these as individual functions. We haven't integrated them in terms of planning for how they affect each other. And so my main point is that probably MPOs are going to have to develop ways of working with the communities, with their very diverse stakeholders, constituents, to integrate all of these different types of criteria that really affect transportation. I now I want to talk a little bit about the composition of MPOs. Are they composed in a way that enables them to carry out the functions that Congress wants them to perform? Right? They are comprised of locally elected officials, both municipal and county, Officials of public agencies that operate public transportation systems, this has been added not too long ago, and appropriate state officials. Congress has given the states great flexibility in terms of how they want to structure their MPOs. Organizationally, MPOs, at least in lots of the larger cities, are now nested in other organizations. So that's why we don't see a Chicago Metropolitan Planning Organization or a Boston Metropolitan Planning Organization. They can be part of a city, a county, state government. Many are hosted by councils of government, such as the Washington, D.C. Council of Government. Some are parts of regional planning agencies, such as the Puget Sound Regional Council in the Seattle area. And some are joint powers agencies. And joint powers agencies basically is where a group of local constituents get together and decide to create a new agency to act on their behalf to undertake a project that's going to be done basically on a regional basis and encompasses their individual jurisdictions. And we also have about 30% of the MPOs are independent and they are not hosted. All right, so let's look and see who has the votes on these MPOs, right? And if you see the vast, way over 50% is local officials. If you take the municipal elected officials at 42%, county commissioners at 15%, and countywide executive officials at 6%, you're over 50%. The local officials dominate these metropolitan planning organizations. Now, state departments of transportation Their representation, according to the survey by the U.S. Department of Transportation, is only 6%. But we all know that state departments of transportation have sort of dominated the planning process. They're usually, or have been in the past, very highway focused. And they have the bucks. You know, they have the money. They have other strengths because they are a state department. But the most troubling to my way of thinking is that only 30% of the MPOs use population as the basis for voting rights. And that means that probably the suburban part of the metropolitan area is going to be predominant here, and that the more densely populated areas are going to have less representation. So the city of Boston, for example, has two voting seats on the MPO, but surrounding communities have 12 votes. Now, granted, they have a larger jurisdictional geographical area, but that just shows you that sometimes this is a little bit lopsided in terms of representation. So these are some of the difficulties that MPOs face. We've touched upon some of them. Planning today is really done on a multifunctional basis and the way MPOs are set up, except for this additional criteria that I pointed out, their primary role is to plan for transportation only. 
because they are hosted frequently, they lack any institutional identity. So they don't have the ability to mobilize the public. The average citizen has never heard of an MPO. Sometimes when I ask my students, do you know what an MPO is? They've never heard of an MPO. Again, their decision-making rests with locally elected officials. Now you might say, this is good. They have to work with localities and we're going down to the grassroots level and we're, we're getting a local input. But basically we're raising here regionalism versus localism and some of the ramifications of that kind of debate. We had that debate maybe some time ago. Maybe it's time to revive some of that and really think about whether we should get more regional metropolitan representation with respect to MPOs and not rely solely on locally elected officials. Right? And then we've talked about proportional representation, the fact that they can't implement their plans and domination by the State Department of Transportation. Now, the financial limitations are also important. If we really wanted to ratchet up the role of MPOs, we would certainly find more monies than just monies coming out of the Highway Trust Fund to subsidize their operations. All right, so I'm focusing now on what MPOs might do in the future. I see that they can play a great role in this new public infrastructure rebuilding that hopefully will take place before too long. And they also may be instrumental in trying to institute policies and programs and strategies to cope with climate change and to build in greater resiliency in terms of our metropolitan area's ability to adapt to changes, whether it's coming from the climate or whether it's coming from disasters or any other kind of tragedy that may be occurring. All right, so multi-purpose rather than single function. And it's what I call creeping regionalism. Basically, the hosted MPOs are already in agencies that are operating on a multi-purpose basis rather than a silo function. So that's just the nature of where we're moving. When we have the nested MPO in another council of government or in a regional agency, they're engaging in multi-purpose planning rather than single function planning. And if we could give them some power with respect to implementing their plans or ensuring that their plans are implemented rather than having the state just make a decision as to what plans it wants or doesn't want, that would be perhaps a step forward. And finally, we get to full-blown plans. We could have a metropolitan regional governance system comparable to Portland's Metro and the Twin Cities Med Council. And finally, we need to plan basically for mega regions because we find corridors and we also find regions merging with out-of-state regions. And we basically don't have any structure yet to deal with that kind of planning for corridors of basically economic growth and development. So if we had a like a high-speed rail system, it should be able to connect various cities to each other. And we really don't have an institutional structure that handles that kind of issue. Now, some of the MPOs are in the process of cooperating, basically, with each other. So they are thinking, you know, basically along these lines. I want to go back just a second. Congress, if it wanted to, could institute new criteria with respect to MPOs. As Audrey Carlin pointed out earlier, they could condition transportation funding. They have conditioned transportation funding upon the creation of MPOs, but Congress could decide. Basically, we're going to embark on a new infrastructure program involving billions of dollars, 
We want some kind of insurance that this is going to be implemented in a way that's going to create maybe a stronger network, mobility, connect to mobility throughout the country in ways that cannot be accomplished by the existing structure. So that is something that we, you know, maybe at this point, we should stop and think about. Now, going back to the multi-purpose service provider, we already have states with legislation similar to this. So I pulled hey, up. Janice? Yes. Yeah, we're at, we're at 20 minutes now. Oh, um, I'm sorry. I didn't yeah. see I didn't see anything. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. The, the chat function isn't, isn't that easy for getting through to the speakers. So if they're on full slide show mode, I would just open it up to one question. Okay, uh, so I will stop right now. Yeah, from Dan Niemeyer. MPOs differ quite a bit in terms of their power and structure. For example, California MPOs have control over 75% of the Fed funds. There was also a recent study that indicates that many have membership voting rights connected to the population. I was wondering if you could just comment on maybe that and, you know, what are the implications of that for MPO governance? Well, that'd be terrific. Uh, Not all states do. Are these MPOs that are joint power agencies? They're very common in California. I don't know if Metropolitan, like the MTC in the Bay Area, for example, I believe is MPO there, and I, I don't know its legal designation. All right. I think that California is probably the leader with respect to MBOs in the sense that they have been for some time combining the consideration of factors other than transportation. I mean, they have been looking at environmental factors in terms of the transportation planning. As you know, they're very concerned about air pollution as well as energy conservation. So you've got some very strong MPOs. The one in San Diego, in particular, if you look at it, they have on their webpage basically a history of this San Diego, that's called Sandag, and showing how their functions have increased over the years. And I know that also the MPO in Sacramento is also a very strong agency. So they're probably what I'm envisioning as where country is going to move more towards having these regional MPOs be really strong players. And so the next step would be to give them some powers of implementation as well as plan. Thank you, Janice. Our next speaker is Noah Kazis. Yeah, thanks so much. It's really wonderful to be here. Transportation was an early interest of mine and not something I've had as much of a chance to write on lately. So this whole conference has been a real treat. And it was a treat to get to take the opportunity to compare some of the land use issues I've been working on more recently to transportation and see what transportation can teach land use. So this paper looks at the public process for setting local land use and transportation policies. And just to clarify, I'm talking here about small scale developments, not mega projects like a highway or a subway that we've heard a lot about today. And I'm mostly talking about existing urban areas, not greenfield development. So it's really, what does it take to build a new apartment building or a new bike lane or to take away a few parking spaces for a bus route? What I argue is that the approval processes tend to look pretty similar in practice. There's a local community meeting, the neighbors show up, probably in opposition. The local city council member gets an effective chance to veto a project in their district. Not a lot gets built, not very quickly. It's usually a fight. Now, that's not so surprising as a practical matter. If you've been to these public meetings, they look and feel very similar. But it is surprising as a legal matter because land use and transportation operate under very different legal regimes. So what I'm going to do is walk through the divergence of legal regimes between local transportation and land use planning, the convergence of practical outcomes, and what we should take away from that. In short, I think that we as lawyers should be more cautious in interpreting how much work the law is actually doing here in creating a hyper-local politics around changing the built environment. And it's worth saying, this paper and this talk, starting with the normative premise that we do need to change 
our built environment in our cities, that we need more housing, that we need better and safer streets, that there's room to improve. Not that any particular project is necessarily beneficial, but that the net direction needs to go in that way. So I start by looking at land use. In recent years, there's been an explosion of literature tracing the dysfunction of our land use system to overly restrictive zoning, and in turn, tracing that zoning back to politics and to law. On the legal side, these scholars point to the increasing number of discretionary review processes to mandatory public hearings and notice requirements that empower the neighbors to show up and to legislative structures which encourage norms of aldermanic privilege. The result, in Richard Babcock's famous words, is trial by neighborism. And land use law in this telling is contrasted with more traditional areas of administrative practice which give greater power to the executive and demand greater levels of evidence and expertise. Now compare that to transportation planning. Looks awfully similar in practice. City proposes the bike lane, they present it to a local community board, a public meeting, the neighbors show up, they're worked up. If the local council member opposes the project, it's probably dead in the water. I think a lot of us have been to these meetings. It's the same trial by neighborism and it's not the same law. Street redesigns are subject to a profoundly different legal regime, which makes sense because formally these are public property rather than regulations of private property. But there's two especially critical differences I focus on. So the first is mayoral control. In most big cities, the streets are under the control of the mayor via Department of Transportation or Department of Public Works, and the DOT doesn't generally need city council approval to reallocate street space. If anything, many city codes, LAs for example, bind their departments of transportation to follow certain expert principles of transportation engineering. Now we've heard a lot about whether those principles are any good but the code still says you have to follow them. There's a lot of exceptions in almost every city where the city council has given itself some limited role, but mayoral control and administrative control is the general rule. And the second difference relates to notice and to hearing requirements. There mostly aren't any in the transportation context. As one New York state court held in a case involving the siting of a bike share station, notice is merely a courtesy and is not required by law. The city doesn't have to usually give formal notice to the neighboring landowners. They don't have to have a community hearing. The layout of a street is as a formal legal matter for routine administration, not for community control. Sometimes federal and state overlays like the environmental review process add in additional participation requirements, but those are usually pretty thin. You know, maybe one hearing, maybe two, not dozens, and they might not be binding in any meaningful respect. So on paper, the transportation planning regime is kind of the pinnacle of centralized, expert-driven, technocratic control. It's everything the progressive era could have dreamed of. But the regime isn't used that way. What you have is essentially a self-imposed set of restraints by city government. The city wants to install a bus lane, say. They come prepared with a glossy slideshow presentation outlining a data-driven expert opinion as to why the bus lane might be a good thing. They're ready to advocate for their position, but they don't just go ahead and do it. They set themselves the challenge of persuading the local community, which is not always an easy task. And so the outcome very often is that the bus lane doesn't get built or it gets paired back or it gets delayed. And this happens constantly. To be clear, this is basically voluntary. It goes beyond what state, local, or federal law requires. Cities make exceptions when they want to in special political circumstances, which shows they can. And I think most tellingly, this is a public process that isn't just for show. Cities know how to hold sham hearings where the public gets to speak, but doesn't actually get heard. The hyper-localism of transportation planning is very real. I'll give one anecdote here that I find telling. So over the course of the last decade or so in New York City, 
the city council has passed law after law requiring for different kinds of street redesign that the DOT give community boards and council members notice about the proposed changes and a chance to comment. I think this is telling for three reasons. First, it confirms that until recently, these groups had no formal role in the transportation planning process. Second, it shows how minimal a formal role they were given. They get to hear a presentation and respond. That's it. And third, it shows how little these formal rules matter. Everyone agrees the laws didn't change anything. Before and after, the community and council member already were informed, they already got to weigh in, and they were already given the practical power to veto a project nine times out of 10. The law on the books and the practice and reality were just totally disconnected. So what's the significance of any of this? I think it should be a splash of cold water on those who think that procedural reforms can fix the nimbyism built into our land use system. So one thing you hear a lot in the land use space is that things would be better if mayors had more power and local legislatures had less. Now, I think that's true directionally. There's good empirical evidence that officials elected at large allow more development than officials elected from local districts. But transportation is resolutely under mayoral control, and it's really no panacea. <laughs> Far from it. So it's not that procedural reforms can't help, but I do think looking at transportation, that comparison says procedural reforms probably can't help that much in land use. And it says we should focus our attentions in the land use reform space on more substantive and less procedural reasons for hyperlocal politics. So that includes financial incentives on the part of homeowners who are worried about changes to the neighborhood affecting their property values, or who are just facing status quo biases that we're all vulnerable to. It includes risk aversion by politicians who would rather see a project not happen than see it become overly controversial. And it includes a real commitment to public participation by elected officials and planners, you know, a sincere belief that this is important, coming either from learning or maybe overlearning the lessons of urban renewal, depending on your perspective. Which is all to say there's not necessarily a way around hyperlocal politics, at least without outside intervention from the state level or from the courts. You might just have to fight your way through it. You can see sort of a paradox of transportation planning here that local governments are structuring their own processes to put their own desired outcomes at a disadvantage, which reveals some interesting features, I think, about local government law more generally, which is that local governments draw their legitimacy from multiple sources. You know, they're ground level and participatory, they're nimble and they're experimental, they help solve coordination problems among residents or property owners, and localists tend to celebrate some or usually all of these virtues. But this paper spotlights that there's a profound tension among these roles about the idea of expertise. You know, it's hard to lead the way on climate or street safety and to recognize administrative expertise in transportation planning. Right? And those already diverge as forms of expertise, while also empowering communities very different form of expertise about what works in their own neighborhoods or residents, you know, individual residents, quasi-property interests in their immediate streetscape. These goals, these kinds of information, these kinds of expertise end up being inevitably incommensurate. So what's interesting is you can see different areas of law trying to find different ways of balancing what constitutes expertise and sort of as an administrative matter. That's sort of a larger question for another day, but it's something that this uh, comparison of transportation and land use really has me thinking about. Thanks, and I'm happy to answer questions. Here's a question from Jeff Wood. How much should planning be informed by political organizing in the way that outreach is more personal? That's a good question. Yeah, I tend to think that that kind of personal outreach is going to end up 
reinforcing a lot of biases in who's able to do that kind of really intense engagement. You know, better to have other ways of gaining information from the ground level. But to the extent that it's all just a fight, advocates and just need to be doing that kind of organizing. But the government-led stuff, which I think some people are really interested in, I tend to be more skeptical that it will actually change patterns of who's empowered and who's disempowered by existing planning processes. And did I see a question from David? Yeah, I would love to ask one, which is, is there a model for like highway planning, which is highway engineers, when they looked at the interstate, they didn't ask the question of the land use along the way, were you in favor of this or not? They had a network vision and they pushed it through. Does a network vision, for example, of active transport infrastructure, things like that help with those hyper-local things when you're like, no, this is a network we have to complete? I think it does. And whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing is sort of up to your normative priors. But the dynamics that I'm discussing here are just not the same when you're talking about large-scale infrastructure like a highway or a subway or something with regional national significance like an airport for, I think, exactly the reasons that you're suggesting, which is that we're, we've pre-selected a goal, right, which is either a network or some sort of economic development idea. And then there's sort of a fight about whether that goal is any good, but you're not basically leaving it up to community control because there's a clear purpose to the infrastructure, which that's where I ended the talk saying, once you say all the forms of expertise and all the forms of anyone's goal over a piece of infrastructure are sort of equally up for grabs, you end up just in an impossible position for local governments, which I think is what you see at these sort of hyper-local fights all the time. There are a few more questions rolling in on the Q&A. One from Justin Bigelow. He asked, looking at ideas like quick build or reversible projects as a means of balancing public participation with administrative implementation of transportation changes. What do you think about that? Yeah, I talk about it a little bit in the paper, actually. I think it's really important. And it it sort of cuts a few different ways, right? One is that it shows how intentional it is by local governments, or at least how voluntary it is, that they do open things up to community input. It's perfectly permissible to say, we're just putting in the bus lane and you can check in with us a month from now about whether it's working. And some cities have started to do that, but they don't, right? So that shows us something about the law. And then the fact that a lot of cities that have done this have really liked it, right? So Boston did this sort of a lot of jurisdictions in the Boston area have done this and it spread really rapidly also suggests that maybe the commitment to this kind of community control is in some sense based on inertia, not entirely, but that, you know, once a new model is embraced, it can spread kind of quickly if the old one wasn't serving that set of government's goals. So I think there's a lot we can learn from it. And I think it's actually worked pretty well because people are better able to give input on something where they've seen it concretely than they are in the abstract. It just gets around some of our inabilities to imagine the future. Greg, you want to jump in? I know we're running short on time, but I just wanted to say briefly, one thing I really liked about this is how you've added some depth to the kind of A versus B discussion, right? And, you know, the challenge here is paradigm shift, right? And so if you're merely removing some parking to put in bus lane that goes for two blocks, the bus lane probably isn't going to do a lot of good. And the people who usually park there are really going to show up to oppose that because they have a concentrated cost and the benefits of that short bus lane are going to be very diffuse. And so things like quick build and other methods that help to facilitate a faster paradigm shift so that those 
trade-offs actually become more pronounced. It's not really about compromise. Now, I'm, I'm offering a gloss, I guess, on what you're saying, but it's an alternative to splitting the baby, which you know, splitting the baby doesn't tend to have great results. Yeah, I accept that as a friendly amendment in full. Do we have time for one last question? Let's take a quick one from Jonathan. We can go a couple of minutes into our next break. Thanks, Noah. I really enjoyed the presentation. And by the way, I incorrectly attributed this work earlier in the day to Greg. As much as I love Greg's work, what I meant was Noah, just to correct the record there. It seems to me that a lot of this is about the role of expertise and deference to expertise. When it comes to, for example, designing a bridge and the load that the bridge is designed to carry, everybody says, well, that's the job of the engineer. When it comes to whether or not a road diet would in fact increase safety, everybody's an engineer. So how should we think about this issue of expertise and deference to expertise? I guess it's a kind of a two-part question. How should we sell the notion of expertise? Because I think in, in a lot of cases, we believe there should be more deference to expertise. At the same time, we've also been talking about the limits of expertise in cases where we think the engineers are just going in the wrong direction. So here I'm going sort of past what I think I could say as a scholar and more what I think just as an individual. I don't have anything to back this up, but I think that what a lot of city DOTs have done that is problematic is try and have it both ways in a way that's completely unpersuasive. So if you say, look, we are experts and we know this will improve safety. Please vote on it. You know, whether you agree this will, then why should you trust those people? You know, if it's really a matter of life and death, they should just do it. That's sort of the logical conclusion of the position. And if the city doesn't have the confidence in their own conclusion to do it, I think it's perfectly reasonable of the neighbors to say, well, I shouldn't have that confidence either. I think that you have to as the city or as the Department of Transportation, be more clear about what is and is not up for community control. And you can draw that line many different places, but you can't draw the line in two different places for the same decision. And I think that's some of what gets people into trouble. I think it works a lot better when you say, we know we're doing X, Y, and Z, and A, B, and C are the places where we're totally willing to give you all the wiggle room you want. But like I said, I don't have any facts to support that, but I do feel it. Thank you. Bunch more questions have floated in on the Q&A and on the chat function. Hopefully, Noah can answer some of those privately. Thanks very much, Noah. We'll move on to our next speaker, Kenneth Stahl. Thanks, Clayton. Ken is fine, but you can call me Kenneth if you like, if you, you know, want to remind me of my mom. It's great to be here. I mean, here in my living room where I've spent the last nine months uninterrupted, but you know, metaphysically here with all of you, and I really appreciate Haley, Dana, and Greg putting together the symposium and especially inviting me to speak, only to speak, not to do any other type of verbal activities such as singing, only speaking. So the purpose of my talk and the draft paper that I submitted is on incorporating transportation topics into the land use curriculum. The need to incorporate transportation topics into the land use curriculum is probably not something that I need to convince anyone in this symposium of. What I'd rather do instead with my limited time is talk more about ways in which this can be done effectively and things that it can accomplish. I think the most obvious is incorporating transportation topics into the land use curriculum can help students understand how central transportation is to land use, which is something that I don't know 
that is impressed enough upon students. I think students are often surprised to get into practice and realize that they're much more often dealing with, with parking and traffic issues than they are with analyzing appellate cases. But I think there's also other advantages, and I'm going to talk about some of these with an example I'm going to give. For example, teaching more about transportation topics can teach students critical thinking and critical reading of texts. It can help to demystify part of the law that's often seen as very technical and intimidating. And this ties in nicely with Jonathan's question that to Noah at the very end of the last session about the way that we kind of fetishize expertise and help students not to do that because land use and transportation are filled with intimidating seeming types of expert analyses. And then also to enrich various parts of the land use curriculum that often may seem intimidating. And so I'm going to give one example in the paper I give four, but really just focus on one given the limited time. And that is I want to talk a little bit about the traffic study and its relationship with quasi-judicial decision-making. Some of this material will probably seem basic to many of you, but in a way that's the point because this is intended to be an introduction to students about how land use and transportation are connected. So let's start with the traffic study. And I'm going to explain a little bit about how traffic studies work and what they are. But basically, as I understand it, the purpose of a traffic study is to estimate or predict the amount of traffic that a new development is going to generate. And this traffic study has become, or sometimes called a traffic impact analysis, but I'm just going to call it a traffic study, has become an increasingly important part of land use decision making for a variety of reasons. One reason is land use decisions have become increasingly politicized and the issue of growth, of course, has become something that's been increasingly controversial. And with that, there's need to make sense of predicted transportation patterns. Another reason is that courts have become increasingly concerned about local jurisdictions imposing requirements, especially monetary exactions on developers without them first quantifying the impact of the development that the jurisdiction is asking the developer to mitigate. And so the traffic study has become a key piece of that analysis as well. And to get back to my point from earlier, the traffic study is something that will appear to most students as being extremely intimidating and impossible to understand. But what's really interesting when you dig down into it is that it's actually incredibly simple and almost simplistic. And once students see that, I think it will hopefully teach them not to be intimidated and to realize how important it is to kind of interrogate these kinds of analyses and not leave them kind of unanalyzed and undiscussed. So from there, let me talk a little bit about the legal piece and then come back to the traffic study. So there's a part of the land use curriculum that I think most students find to be extremely dry and uninteresting, which is the distinction between legislative and quasi-judicial decisions. So let me look at, I have a PowerPoint here. Let's take a look at this. So this is a chart that I show my students to illustrate the distinction between legislative and quasi-judicial decisions. Generally, local governments essentially wear kind of two hats. Sometimes they act like legislatures in which they make broad policies that affect the community as a whole, such as a zoning ordinance or a general plan. At other times, local governments make individualized decisions about the particular rights of an individual landowner. And that seems more like adjudicatory. So a variance, subdivision review, which is something Jonathan talked about earlier today, are examples of things that would be considered quasi-judicial in nature. Now, again, this is kind of dry seeming, but it's become a really important distinction because of reasons I kind of hinted at earlier. As growth has become more politicized, 
local governments want to be able to do more individualized review of projects and exercise more leverage over developers, which means they want to do more of the adjudicatory type decision-making where they're making parcel by parcel decisions rather than broad prospective decisions. And they want to use those process in politicized ways. They want to invite neighbors to come and complain about projects. And then the city responds by requiring the developer to mitigate the impacts of the project to appease the neighbors. And that's all kind of permitted as part of the structure of a quasi-judicial proceeding. However, there's a flip side. The flip side is that there are all kinds of procedural requirements that jurisdictions have to follow in quasi-judicial proceedings that they don't have to follow in quasi-legislative proceedings, such as they actually have to apply certain types of standards. And most importantly, their decisions have to be supported by something like substantial evidence, which generally just means some evidence. So in a legislative decision, a city council, for example, can be influenced by the political whims of neighbors who don't want a project in their backyard. But in a quasi-judicial proceeding, they can't just defer to the neighbors. They have to actually have evidence. And the U.S. Supreme Court itself has actually gotten involved in this area and said that when municipalities impose monetary or in-kind exactions from developers, they actually have to quantify their findings about the relationship between the exaction demanded and the impact of the development. So somehow jurisdictions have to thread that needle. And it's the traffic study that allows them to do it. Because when neighbors complain that a project is gonna to cause too much traffic, you can't deny the project or demand an exaction, like for example, a highway widening, just because the neighbors complain. You have to have some evidence. And that's where the traffic study comes in. And that's why I think this is a really good point to introduce the traffic study. Now, most of the existing land use casebooks that I've looked don't talk much about traffic studies or even really what constitutes substantial evidence. What they do instead is they just kind of discuss the legal standard of substantial evidence and then leave the rest of it to the experts, right? Well, you know, we're not going to discuss the technical thing of what substantial evidence is, right? That's for the planners and the engineers. So in my paper, I talk a little bit about one really, in a way, funny to me case in one of the big case books, the Selmy Kushner book called Blue Ridge versus the city of Pineville. In that case, they illustrate this substantial evidence principle. There was a question about whether a project would generate too much traffic. Well, it turned out that the people claiming that the project was going to generate a lot of traffic didn't have a traffic study. The side claiming that the project wasn't going to cause too much traffic did have a traffic study. And so the court said, aha, there is some substantial evidence supporting that the project won't have a big traffic impact because that side has a traffic study and the other side doesn't. So there was literally no analysis of the contents of the traffic study or its methodology. It's just the side that had a traffic study won, right? So it's almost a talismanic deference to the expertise. And the casebook authors in a way share that by not really even bothering to get into the methodology. It's just, well, duh, one side had an expert, the other one didn't. Well, what I wanna do with my students is dig into some of that expert testimony a little bit. So what I want to do is show you a little bit about a traffic study to kind of deepen the understanding of cases like Blue Ridge. And I picked this traffic study, not because it's special in any way or controversial, but just because it's relatively straightforward. I know you can't really read this right now. I'm going to zoom in a little bit. But basically, 
I took a traffic study from a project in the city of Carson, California, a mixed use projects, apartments, retail, restaurant. And I asked my students to read this thing and tell me, okay, a couple of things. First of all, how many new trips, trips meaning vehicle trips, does the traffic study estimate this project is going to create? Hopefully, students will find their way to this page, which tells you the actual number. If you zoom in here, you can see it projects a net increase of 2,398 traffic trips. And they determine that simply by determining how many new trips the new project will generate and then subtracting the number of trips at the existing site, right? So that's simple math. And it's this kind of number, the 2398 at the bottom that the city can now use to demand an exaction. We want you to widen the highway because it's gonna be 2000 new trips or neighbors can use this as a basis for organizing against it. Like for example, you see here, an example of a opposition to a project, 10,000 more cars. Well, where does that number come from? It's coming from a traffic study. Somebody generated to determine how much traffic there was gonna be. So these numbers have both political and legal significance. But do they have any actual technical validity? All right, so let's look again at how these numbers are generated. So we saw before 3628 new trips being generated by the project. How is that determined? Well, they simply break down the project into all its component land uses, apartments, supermarkets, pharmacy, and so on, and then generates estimated number of trips for each use. So I'm just using as an example here, the high turnover sit-down restaurant, estimated to generate 432 new trips, this new restaurant that's going to be at the Avalon community. So where are they getting 432 from? As you can see here, they start with a base of 636 and then subtract a bunch of trips where does this all come from? I'm asking my students, right? Well, they should be able to find this relatively quickly because the answer is right on the next page. And it's hinted at right here in the notes next to each use, right? High turnover sit-down restaurant, you see note 10. If you look at the next page, you see all the notes. And it tells you that most of these numbers are based on the Institute of Transportation Engineers Trip Generation Manual, and if we look at footnote 10 here, it shows you the standard daily trip rate for a high turnover sit-down restaurant, 127.15 trips for every 1,000 square feet of floor area. So all you have to do once you have that number, 127.15 for 1,000 square feet, is take that number and multiply it by the number of square feet at this restaurant. 127.15 times 5,000 that's 636 trips. That's it. It's simple arithmetic. And then they subtract some trips for what's called internal capture trips generated within the development, transit, and trips that will pass by to generate the final number of 432. Now, hopefully, when you've gone through this with students, they will then get to the point where they'll ask the question, where does this number, 127.15 trips for every thousand square feet of floor area, come from? And I assign students, in addition to the traffic study, to read a very short piece by Donald Shube called Truth in Transportation Planning that explains this very, very clearly and briefly. And in essence, here's what he shows. Where these numbers come from is, again, the ITE Trip Generation Manual. And here is the page from the ITE Trip Generation Manual that shows you that a sit-down restaurant is giving you 127.15 average trips per 1,000 square feet gross floor area. Okay, but notice something. The number 127.15 is based on a total of 14 samples. 
That is 14 restaurants in the entire country were used to generate this number. And here they are plotted on this graph. The thing that you'll notice, aside from it being an extremely small sample size, is that there is also absolutely no relationship between the square footage of the restaurant and the number of trips it generates. The average is just kind of a fantasy that's created based on an assumption that there must be a relationship between square footage and the trips generated. So that's one and, point you make. And you're at the 15 minute mark. I just wanted to. Well, okay. The other thing I'll just say briefly is that he also says that these samples are uniformly generated at suburban sites where there's ample free parking and no transit, which means you're basing your future transportation planning on your existing standards. So the question I ask students after going through this discussion is, do we really think this kind of graph represents the kind of substantial evidence to which courts should be deferring? Because courts, again, are not inquiring at all into this methodology. They just assume that if the traffic study, it's valid. So I'll leave it there, but you can see how this can be a really, really valuable exercise for students to demystify the technical seeming aspects of traffic studies and to see that there's really an ideological project underneath it all. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much, Ken. Fascinating drill down into the data. I want to start with a question from Daniel McKenna Foster. To reference Dr. Goddard's remarks from earlier on semantics, the concept of the traffic study is based on the idea that land use is, quote, generate, unquote, traffic as if land uses are the causal agent. This completely ignores the true actor and what creates traffic, people choosing to drive, and thus allows planners and engineers to sidestep the role of the infrastructure that they mandate plays into encouraging people to drive more, which I believe is kind of the point of your drill down into those data. Is there any legal way to challenge the fundamental causality implied by terms like generate or create? Oh, that's such an interesting point. And yeah, I think that is in a way, a premise of what I'm saying here, which is one thing that engineers are often doing with these studies is they're assuming that they themselves are playing no role in these patterns. They're assuming that the trips that are being generated are simply being generated by the land use and that their own role in widening highways or demanding free parking or whatever have no role in that process. So certainly I think that's something that could be used to challenge the methodology of traffic studies in court. The point I didn't really get to at the end of the talk here was Courts are, I think, less interested in accuracy than they are in things that can easily be measured. And one point that Shoup makes is there's a reason why we use square footage is because it's easy to measure and it's not something that can be manipulated. If you use like the number of seats in a restaurant, well, then restaurants will use folding chairs so that they, they won't have to count as seats. Right. So this is an easy thing to measure. Planners like things that are easy to measure. And so do courts. Courts don't want to look at a bunch of charts and have to figure out whose chart is more methodologically accurate than someone else's. So it's worth talking about with students, but I'm skeptical that courts are going to want to look any more deeply into the methodology of traffic studies than they already do, which is to say, not at all. So this topic is generating tons of feedback from the audience. I want to jump in with a quick question, which is, I was on an amicus brief for redistricting. It reminds me of John Roberts' statement that this is all sociological gobbledygook. And a lot of social scientists sneered at that. But judges and lawyers don't want to be social scientists or engineers. And yet they also don't really hire the in-house expertise. You know, like some Yale law grad clerking for them doesn't have any expertise to help them with these problems either. And so is the problem with the judiciary or is the problem with the experts or both? 
really funny that you mentioned that because that was exactly the example I was thinking about, which was the partisan gerrymandering situation and Roberts's you know, denunciation of the various expert testimony. Again, I think that illustrates the point that courts are okay with expert testimony if it's relatively simple, right? They like principles like one person, one vote. It's very easy to apply. It's very easy to use as a yardstick. And scholars in the partisan gerrymandering situation have tried to come up with a similar, like, oh, the efficiency gap. Just All you have to do is plug in these numbers and it's really easy. Because they understand that what courts value more than anything is a formula that's simple enough that courts can apply it without too much parsing of expert techniques. And I think that's the same thing that we're seeing with traffic studies. I think it's worth trying to develop methodologies. And again, I mentioned in the paper that several others like Christy Currents, who gave me a lot of advice for this project, have really sharpened and introduced a lot more nuance into the traffic study methodology. But I worry that that's exactly the problem, that judges don't want nuance. They want something simple. So the challenge is going to be, just as those in the political science area who've written about the efficiency gap and other partisan gerrymandering standards, is there a way we can come up with a methodology that's both more accurate, but also simple enough that courts aren't going to be scared of applying it? Yeah. Unfortunately, we got to move on. But there are lots of questions in the Q&A and in the chat room. So I hope you'll have a chance to jump in and answer a few of those. Thanks so much, Ken. Okay. And then the final talk is Professor Darian Shansky. Do I have that pronounced right? From UC Davis School of Law. We're co-authoring with Debney Meyer. So I'm going to quickly introduce our topic so I can give my co-author, Debney Meyer, as much time as possible to really introduce some some, uh, really cool stuff. I want to thank everyone. Um, This is just a terrific event all around. And of the many things that's terrific about it has been an almost sort of Wizard of Oz. You know, we're ripping apart the curtain and seeing sort of what's underneath. And it turns out it's not a pretty picture. A lot of the rules we're learning are weak. Some of them are arbitrary. Some of them are biased. And those are the better ones because obviously a lot of them are also invidious. And so our topic, sublocal tax districts, are... I just want to be clear what we're talking about before we do a deep dive into the data. So these are not special districts. It's not like BART District or the Metropolitan, the MTA in New York. These are sub-local districts, so a district created within typically a general purpose jurisdiction. So business improvement district in a city, sort of a redevelopment district that uses a tax increment financing structure also within a city. But that's not our focus here. It's on what in California are called community facility districts and Texas calls municipal utility districts, a different kind of sublocal district typically associated with greenfield development. Our focus is on California, where these districts are known as Melarus districts. They were authorized by state statute in 1982 in the aftermath of Prop 13. Prop 13, among its many gifts, makes it very hard for local governments to raise, actually impossible to raise property taxes, very hard to raise other kinds of taxes. And so there's a big gap in terms of how new infrastructure was going to be financed, even for greenfield suburban development. So the CFD law, Mellow and Ruth were the legislators, the, what the community facility district is the sort of way the districts are known. They're structured really on any sort of geography within the jurisdiction, sort of very flexible. There doesn't have to be really any people there. So developers can create the district, impose a tax on the district and then securitize the future tax revenue that the new residents are going to pay once they move into the district. And so that is how CFDs are a tool for greenfield development. 
terms of policy frame, in terms of what might we think about these CFDs, you might wonder, might think that, well, they're flexible. You can create them in lots of different ways. They're efficient. Developers can take advantage of the double tax exemption at the state and federal level when they issue bonds to finance um, this infrastructure. Maybe they get a low interest rate and they pass it on to consumers who want this kind of development and can tailor their amenity bundles using these districts. Right, the cons, right, opaque, right? Lots of these districts, what do they do? The developers are often the ones who set the ground rules, so they're non-democratic, and maybe they're efficient in some economic way, but to the extent that they seem to be an engine for creating sprawl pattern development, they're inefficient when you take into account the kinds of things we've been talking about all day, environmental externalities and socioeconomic ones as well. And so we did a deep dive into these districts, and I will now hand off to my co-author, Deb Niemeyer, to tell you what we found and where we found it. Yeah, hi. So I want to talk a little bit about where we decided to initially begin exploring. And what you see here is Sacramento County. It's in sort of central California. And we've been focusing on this county for most of our analysis. The county has a population of about 105 million, 1.5 million. And property taxes are the largest source of revenue, obviously. And in 2019 alone, the county raised about $1.8 billion just to sort of frame the problem. And uh, these property taxes fund approximately 175 to 180 local governments. And these include school districts, special districts like park or fire, community and city and county operations. And then to give you a small sense about how these revenues are spent, about 50% of them are spent on schools, 16% are spent on county operations, about 10% return to the cities, and we'll talk about that a little bit. And then roughly 17 to 20% of the revenue that's raised goes to these special districts. So it's a significant amount of money that's transpiring through both the development of these districts and then how the revenue flows work. It's also worth pointing out that the city of Sacramento is the state capital. It's also the seat of the government for the county. The city of Sacramento itself has about half a million people, and it's considered one of the most diverse and ethnically integrated urban cities in the country. There are large Hispanic and Asian communities with smaller Russian and Eastern European communities as well. And that's where the Black Circle is. And then finally, there are six incorporated cities, and this is going to be important as we go along in the talk. There are six incorporated cities. These are the gray areas you see on the far right. You can kind of get a spatial sense about how they're allocated across the county. And there are about, in the middle figure, what you see is approximately 450,000 parcels. So that's the context. Okay, so if we start with the tables on the right, here in the top table, you can see the number of CFD levies that are passed on any given parcel. So the number of levies that might exist on a parcel range from zero to seven. You can see that approximately 70% of the parcels have zero levies on them, which means that obviously about 30% of the parcels have one or more CFD levied on it. And if we combine the table and the figure below, you can also see how the total amount of the levy 
that is one or more levies that are assessed on a single parcel will vary across the parcels. So let's take that area that's yellow that you can see. You can see that roughly 23,000 parcels have two CFD levies assessed on them. And the total average sum or the total CFD, the sum of the two levies is 1552. And then below the table are the violin plots. And these just show the distribution of the data using a kernel density estimation. And wider sections of the violin plot represent higher probabilities that parcels in this population will take on a given value. And the skinnier sections represent a lower probability. And if you look at the violin plot, what you can see is that some parcels pay a lot less and some a lot more in terms of the total amount levied on that parcel. And in fact, across all these parcels, these levy categories, there's what we call a long-tailed effect. I mean, some parcels pay significantly more than the average total levy amount assessed on individual parcels. So we have a lot of spatial heterogeneity that begins to come out. And if you look on the figure at the left, what you can see is the red outlines, which I'll show you in a little bit more relief in the next slide, show the incorporated boundaries for the six cities within the county. The red and black areas identify parcels that have one or more CFD levy assessed on them. And you can see here that most of the CFDs are located in the Elk Grove proximity. That's sort of the center portion there. But there are parcels levied with CFDs levied on them, spatially distributed throughout the county. Um, There's clusters you can see to the north and and clusters to the southern area. I should say that we also looked at the variation in CFD assessments by each specific levy. And there was a lot of variation within the range of 0 to 1% of the assessed value. And here, this has to do with how Prop 13 works in the sense that since Prop 13 a total property tax on a parcel should not ideally exceed 2%. And 1% is taken up with the post Prop 13 property tax. So that leaves about 1% for everything else. And each levy varies within that as to how much it assesses. What's worth noting here is that when a CFD tax occupies a large share of the remaining 1%, there isn't a lot left over in terms of the property's tax capacity that's available for more general purposes. Okay, so now we'll dive in a little bit more. And here you can see the distribution of CFDs with incorporated areas shown in gray relief. Just to give you some context here, the incorporated areas account for a population of close to a million. There's about 238 square miles. There's overall regional density of 4,100 persons per square mile. The unincorporated region accounts for 715 square miles and has a density of roughly 846 persons per square mile. So you can see that the densities in the unincorporated areas are significantly lower than the incorporated areas within the region. You can also sort of see this idea that there's a lot of CFDs sort of assessed in southern Sacramento, the city's incorporated area. And some 70% of the CFDs that are levied are within the city of Sacramento and the city of Elk Grove. But 23% of the levies have been assessed in parcels in the unincorporated areas with very low density. 
So we have a very large number of parcels that have CFDs on them in the unincorporated areas. So then if we move to Elk Grove, where that parcel, the CFD densities are pretty significant, what you can see here is that the city, upwards of 95, 94, 95% of its parcels have one or more CFDs actually levied on them. And what's really interesting about this is that the city of Elk Grove was incorporated just in the year 2000. So it means that given the relatively young status of the city, that the incorporated, not incorporated distinction we're drawing on for greenfield development might be pretty noisy. And that if you think about how recently Elk Grove was incorporated, it might be that the actual percentage of CFDs used for eventual city development, but in greenfields is a lot higher than what we're seeing here, which is the 23%. So then we've also started on a little bit of exploratory dynamics in terms of demographics. And here what you can see is some early evidence that where we can see that parcels with CFDs levied on them tend to be in less diverse areas. And as we go along, we'll sort of pull this out a little bit. But right now, the tendency seems to be that parcels that are located in unincorporated areas also tend to be less diverse areas. So that would account, again, for a big portion, roughly 23% of all the CFD parcels. Okay, so now I'm turning it back to Darian to finish us up. Okay, great. So I will wrap it up so we can get some time for questions. Another component of our project is to do a deeper dive into the financing documents for to the extent bonds were issued in connection with these developments. And the main take home is that these financings are not objectively cheaper. Um, The interest rates that these development bonds are getting are not that low. They're expensive financings. And so to the extent that there is a benefit, an efficiency benefit in terms of these financings, it is presumably because of the opportunity cost of developers' own capital or some salient story in terms of homeowners not uptaking the full value of the tax that they're going to pay. So then the question is, in terms of the policy take home, what should we think about this? We think that, at least based on our preliminary findings, the cons of these districts are real. They get a substantial subsidy, so they're expensive. They subsidize sprawl and segregation. On the other hand, the the fact that developers like them, again, and maybe for a relatively innocuous reason in terms of opportunity cost, means that there is a lever that state law could pull to encourage better development patterns in terms of putting different kinds of requirements on developers if they want to use these kinds of districts. And I will stop there. Thank you so much. It's been a great conference to participate in. Thanks. So we have about three minutes left for Q&A. So in thinking about you know, possibly placing restrictions on the use of these special tax districts, do you think one reason they're so attractive is because they subsidize the kind of development that developers like, which allow them to externalize their cost of sprawl onto development sites? And if you did actually attach more urbanism requirements to such measures, would that just deter people from resorting to this kind of financing mechanism? That's a great question. And obviously, we're not exactly sure the size of the subsidy. It seems to me that it is fairly substantial. But at the same time, 
I don't think we could use them to sort of require extremely high density. On the other hand, I think we've talked about sidewalks. We can talk about more affordable housing. We can talk about pedestrian-friendly. It's only a small piece of the puzzle. I'll let Deb answer too, oversell, but I think it's a lever for relatively small changes. But maybe there's more there than I'm imagining. No, I would agree with Darian on this. Yeah, there's levers there for small changes. Any other questions from the audience? Okay, go ahead, Janice. I'm interested in the correlation between Proposition 13 and the creation of these districts. I found in Georgia, these districts were also being created, but I think your implication was that the necessity to basically finance infrastructure because of Proposition 13. So if Proposition 13 somehow were to magically disappear, would you need these districts? That's a great question. I think that the need would not be as severe because governments could support infrastructure projects. If they could raise property taxes, they wouldn't be in quite the same fiscal straitjacket. But in other states that don't have Prop 13, these districts are still popular. And I think that we are uncovering why is because the opportunity cost and the opportunity, I think, also to probably pull one over on homeowners is still present in Texas and Georgia and Florida. And so goes to show why their popularity is resilient and then therefore why policymakers have an opportunity. It's also worth saying that they're very unpopular in California because when a developer puts funds through a CFD op, if there's a project that links to a state project, for example, a widening or an interchange, that project jumps to the top of the state's infrastructure list. So they're, in some ways, they work to incentivize each other depending on their spatial location in a region. All right. Thank you to all of our panelists for another great session. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you to my co-host, Jeff Lynn. Thank you to our producer, Skylar Pals, and to all of you, our listeners. If you haven't already, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find the show. You can subscribe there as well. The views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated. 